You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hello and welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by 90 Min. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simiu, coming to you live on this Sunday night. If you're listening via the audio platforms, good morning. Hope you guys are all well, enjoying your Monday so far. Uh, and I hope you all had a great weekend. It's been a cracking weekend of football, that is for sure. Started off perfectly with Arsenal taking three points against Aston Villa on Friday night, but not just taking three points, performing in a really, really convincing way. And that's something we haven't been able to say anywhere near often enough so far this season. So delighted uh, to see Arsenal, of course, um, you know, getting the three points most crucially, but also turning in a really, really cool performance. Uh, Omar says, Monday, it's Sunday. Yeah, but for those that are listening on audio, Omar, that's why I said if you're listening via the audio, this uh, it will be Monday because it comes out Monday morning. So you guys on YouTube have the privilege of watching this live, uh, but those that listen via the audio will get the recording afterwards. So uh, that's why I said Monday. I haven't got mad, I promise you. Um, cracking day of football today. You know, really, really good, really, really enjoyable. Started off the day uh, watching Spurs get beat at West Ham. And uh, that's always good to see. I know West Ham are a side that, you know, we're we're probably in competition with this season. And, and I do think that at some point West Ham United will maybe ease off a little bit just because of their European commitments and the, the size of the squad. I think at the moment they're managing it quite well. But I think as the European competition gets tougher, uh, that will be more of a challenge for them. So I know there were a lot of Arsenal fans out there that were sitting there saying, I'd like to see a draw here. For me, I just always want Spurs to lose. So it was it was quite easy to get behind West Ham today and watch them win it by a goal to nil. And then, of course, there was what we're going to call the Manchester United massacre at Old Trafford. Liverpool running away 5-0 winners. Manchester United with a player sent off as well. And this could well be the end of Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. I say that. I'm not sure that the club will see it that way. I think they might keep hold of Oli Gunnar Solskjaer a little bit longer, give him more of an opportunity to try and get things back on track. But I think any Manchester United fans that were kind of still trying to convince themselves that Oli Gunnar Solskjaer is the right man to take the club forward probably changed their minds today. There were pictures of Man United fans leaving the ground at half time. You know, we saw masses leaving around about the hour mark. Imagine that. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was 17 years to the day, actually, since Manchester United robbed us or my, um, or the referee and Manchester United combined robbed us of extending that unbeaten run even further. So it's kind of karma. And if we can't do it to them, there's only one team that they hate just as much, and that is Liverpool. So I was quite pleased to see that happen. Not going to lie. Um, also, El Clasico was on today. Real Madrid running out winners in that. I've just finished watching Inter versus Juventus. That was a cracking game as well. So it's been a wonderful weekend of football. Uh, we'll probably do a little bit more of a chat about some of these outside of the Arsenal stuff 
uh, over the next sort of 24 hours or so. But I want to really home in on that win over Aston Villa because there was a few things tactically that I feel are worth discussing. Um, let's let's get into that because that's obviously the most important thing, right? Anything Arsenal related takes precedent over anything else. Uh, let's talk about the way that Mikel Arteta set up the side because there's been a lot of discussion around it in the last sort of 24 hours. Was it a 4-4-2? Um, I think a lot of people have called it a 4-4-2. I think to make life easier, you could probably say it was a 4-4-2. But if you want to be really picky and really fussy, I personally feel like it was a 4-4-1-1. And I said that in the post-match reaction show. And obviously, I'd come straight from the stadium, jumped on, recorded the podcast, since watched the game back. And I'm... You know, I'm now totally convinced that that was the case, that it was not a old school 4-4-2 with two strikers pushed right up the pitch all the time. Alex Nakazet was dropping into deeper areas very, very frequently. Um, if you look at some of the great kind of counter-attacks we put together after we'd uh, gone into the lead, you'll see that Aubameyang was much higher up the pitch than Alexander Lacazette, who was obviously making an effort to get up there, but wasn't quite as far forward as Aubameyang. So his starting position was slightly deeper. And that's why for me, it's a 4-4-1-1. So the big question is, off the back of that performance, is this something that Arsenal should look to persist with? Is this something that Arsenal should adopt moving forward? Now, we've talked a lot about a lack of creativity in this side, haven't we? We've talked about it time and time again. We constantly talk about the need for more goals, the need for us to create with more regularity. And while I think that this formation gave us all of those things, I do think that it's not something that is going to work every single week. And it's not something that I would say categorically 100% should be our go-to system as we move throughout the rest of the season. Now, that's not to say it didn't work excellently against Aston Villa. That's not to say I didn't enjoy seeing Aubameyang and Lacazette on the pitch. I talked in the lead up to the Villa game about the need for Aubameyang to remain in the side, but also the need for Lacazette to come in. And I thought that the way Mikel Arteta would look to do that would be by pushing Aubameyang out onto the left flank again and then giving that central striking position to Alexander Lacazette. And instead, he thought a little bit outside of the box. Because let's be honest, the 4-4-2 formation in 2021 is a rarity, right? You don't see it very often. There's almost a reluctance among managers and coaches of this era to go with that system because of what it does for the balance of the team. You know, very often you'll play against a three-man midfield at minimum and therefore leaving two in there. Does that leave you exposed? I think a lot of managers worry about that. I think a lot of managers see that area of the pitch as the most important and therefore they want to exercise what gives them the most control. And so I get why people in general, have moved away from the system. But I just think for me, if we've got Lacazette and Aubameyang playing well, that adds an extra 30-40% to how good this team are. Because although we can talk about the improvements that we've seen in a defensive, um, you know, in a from a defensive standpoint, I think we have to say that this season, that the lack of creating of chances, which we've seen in most games, has been a worry. The fact that we're not scoring that many goals or weren't scoring that many goals is obviously a worry. And you feel that when you look at the personnel that we have at the football club available to Mikel Arteta, 
they are still two of our biggest goal threats. They're the two biggest goal threats. And therefore, if there's a way of putting them in the side that doesn't completely disrupt the balance, that doesn't completely leave us exposed, then I think that's something that should be explored. But I want to kind of highlight why, for me, it worked particularly well against this Aston Villa side and why I think that going forward, we can apply it in a lot of games, but there will be games where this particular system that we're talking about, I feel, just won't be fit for purpose. And I think it's important that we, you know, we understand that and we don't get too carried away with the idea of playing this way. So, you know, if you have a look at it and you, and you look at the way that Arsenal set up and it was obviously Ramsdale in goal. I've still got Tierney in there. I need to change that. Let me change that now. Um, before somebody pulls me up on it, because I know somebody will. Um, it was Nuno Tavares at left back. It was Gabriel on white in the centre-back positions with Tommy Asu from the right. Lakonga partnered Thomas Partey in the middle. Bukayo Saka, much to my surprise, started the game. Emil Smith-Rowe operated from the left-hand side. And then it was um, Aubameyang and Lacazette up top. Now, I talk about Lacazette playing in that slightly off position, and I think he was for the most part. He was dropping into that midfield area, helping out Lekonga and Partey, who also played a massive part, by the way, in making this system work. And I'll come on to talk about those guys in a minute. But if we just focus on Aubameyang first and Lacazette and concentrate on what it is that those two did very, very well. So Lacazette, you know what he is. You know what he gives you. He gives you a lot of work rate. He gives you a lot of effort. He gives you the ability to link up play, which is something that Aubameyang is probably nowhere near as good at. Although for Emil Smith-Rowe's goal, he dropped into a slightly deeper position and played a lovely first-time pass around the corner, which will release Emil Smith-Rowe. So, you know, he's, he's it's something that he's adding. It's something that he's getting better at. But for me, Lacazette is the, the pinnacle of that within this Arsenal squad. He's the example of how that should be done on a week-to-week basis. And I really, really enjoyed seeing him do that again. But the reason I say it worked so well was because Aston Villa play with three centre-backs. Now, we've seen Arsenal in the past, in the very recent past, in fact, at certain points this season, go toe-to-toe with sides who play this way. And we'll just move the players a little bit further up the pitch so I can have the space to demonstrate to you what it is I want to demonstrate to you. Don't worry if you're listening via audio, you can head over to YouTube if you prefer uh, to have the visuals. Um, You know, Villa played very much like this, okay? They pushed their two wing-backs, Cash, Target, up the pitch, played with three centre-backs in Consar, Tyrone Mings, and the other one's name has completely escaped me, Twanzebe, and... um, Yeah, you know, they played with the back three. They pushed their wing backs up. Now, one of the things, as I said, we mentioned earlier on is that we've seen Arsenal centre forwards get lost when trying to play against sides who play three at the back. Because often your centre forward is isolated, gets into a position where numerically they're completely um, at a disadvantage. And that means that you're unable to get the ball into them. You're unable to make it stick. They're unable to pull away and create spaces. Having two centre-forwards changes that completely, right? It almost makes it as though you're playing with one striker against two centre-backs. It levels the playing field completely, completely. Because what it does is it means that you're now in a place where two of those centre-backs, two of the three centre-backs are now occupied. 
And that's not what a back three want. They want to have that strong numerical advantage. So occupying a couple of them and picking up into, into those spaces in between the three of them causes them a problem. Add to that that Emil Smith-Rowe was excellent at drifting infield from the left-hand side and creating this space for Nuno Tavares to bomb on on the outside and that Bukayo Saka was going and causing problems as well. It made it impossible for Villa to live with us. And that's, for me, something that Arsenal did very, very well. They looked at the system. They looked at what it is that Aston Villa like to do, how they like to set up. Add to that that Lacazette had made an impact in the last couple of games when he'd come on as a sub and that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang was really leading by example and there was no way that dropping him felt like the right thing. Mikel Arteta put together this strategy to go with the two forwards, to use Emil Smith-Rowe as Saka as players who would get in and amongst. And at times, it looked like Arsenal, if I just pull Nuno Tavares back down, it looked like Arsenal were playing a 4-2-4 when in possession. Now, that is obviously risky. It's obviously something that can leave you exposed potentially. Um, but Gabriel White, Tommy Asu getting close together, becoming a bit of a defensive unit. Aaron Ramsdale playing on the edge of his penalty area, always on his toes, ready to come and sweep up anything, was obviously a massive, massive help as well. And Arsenal took a, what I believe to be a calculated risk against this Aston Villa side. Now you look at the way Villa set up, it was Watkins, it was Ings up top, and Emi Buendia, who looked like a complete and utter waste of money at however much they paid for him, 35, 40 million pounds on Friday night in isolation. Admittedly, I haven't seen that much of Villa this season, but, you know, he didn't offer anything. He was dominated uh, by Laconga and Partey. And, and the fact that Arsenal were able to do this when in possession just pinned Aston Villa right back. We pressed, we harried, we were aggressive, and we stopped them getting the ball out to those wide areas uh, to target and cash. And the reason we managed to do that was because even if they did bypass that first line of press, Emi Martinez's distribution wasn't good enough to pick out teammates. And Takahiro Tomiyasu was quite happy to squeeze up, as was Nuno Tavares, um, with Lekonga and Partey taking care of Buendia between them. And our two centre-halves were quite comfortable one-on-one -on -one against Ings and Watkins. You know, Gabriel showed some incredible sort of physicality during that game. And when you cast your mind back to the Brentford game, where we were in a similar position, i.e., they stuck two centre-forwards up the pitch against us. We struggled to deal with that physicality because Pablo Marie just wasn't up to it. We know that that's not Ben White's, um, you know, biggest strength. And, and and it was a problem for us. You know, it was it was a horrible problem. Gabriel just gave us that something different. You know, he, he wasn't going to allow not Watkins, not Ings, not any of them to dominate him, to bully him. And the fact that we've got players that you can now trust in those situations, along with Tavares, along with Tommy Asu, it means that we can be that bit more adventurous in the way we deploy those players that are further forward. So really, really positive to see Arsenal um, being aggressive, being on the front foot. We started the game very similarly to the way we did against Crystal Palace, where we were completely in control. Only this time it lasted longer. This time we were able to maintain it for a much longer period of time and wore Aston Villa down. Um you know, so that was how it worked when Arsenal were in possession. But when Arsenal were without possession, you saw Alexander Lacazette quite willing to drop into those deeper areas 
um, and provide a bit of a shield for Lukonga and Partey. Now, Alexander Lacazette at times popped up in all different areas of the pitch. I saw him working back, covering the space in between Saka and Tomiyasu at times. I saw him working back down the left, covering the gap between Tavares and Emil Smith-Rowe. I also saw him doubling up with Partey and Lukonga when they were pressing in search of the ball. He also helped the forwards press. He was just everywhere. It was an immense performance from Alexander Lacazette and one he deserves a hell of a lot of credit for. So he was key. But going back to one of the original points I made, why did this work against Aston Villa and why do I think it won't work against other teams? Well, I've talked about all the deficiencies in Villa, their inability, in my opinion, to play out from the back, to beat the press, um, and the fact that we were so dominant in those defensive areas. But I think this works against somebody like Aston Villa for the simple fact that they only play with two central midfielders and there will be a lot of teams that come to Arsenal and feel like they're going to they need to pack out the midfield and they'll play with the three and Buendia won't be somebody playing off the off the two forwards he will be a, a, an old-fashioned midfielder a traditional centre midfielder and the minute that becomes three then it slightly changes the picture it slightly changes the remit for Alexander Lacazette who at this point had the freedom to drop back when it was needed but also could quite comfortably go forward and be that little bit more adventurous in his runs at times, knowing that Partey and Lukonga at minimum would be able to handle that midfield of John McGinn and Douglas Louise one-on-one. Whereas if you come up against a side where they play a flat midfield three, then all of a sudden Lacazette's role changes and it's no longer possible for him to be a second striker. He has to play more like a number 10. Otherwise, you get overrun. Otherwise, you get dominated. And that is, for me, why against Aston Villa, it was perfectly fine and it worked and it was great and it was brilliant. And it's definitely something that we should keep in our locker and something we should consider moving forward. But there will be teams against which this particular system and this extra freedom that is afforded to somebody like Alexander Lacazette in order to get up closer to Aubameyang, but also work back in different areas of the pitch, that freedom will be restricted when you come up against a flat three-man midfield. For example, you play against Liverpool, you can't play this way. You can't. You know, you play against Chelsea, maybe you can get away with it. Um, obviously, I'm talking about teams that are superior to us, but I'm, what I'm talking about is the the systems. They don't, they, they just don't marry up. They don't match up. You play against Liverpool, flat midfield free of you know, who did they have today? They started with Milner, Henderson and Cater. You get overrun playing this way and it doesn't work. So as I say, there will be times where Mikel Arteta can play this way, can set us up this way. And I think it will work great. But there are going to be other times where it just isn't the right thing. And I think as fans, we need to be mature enough to realise that and to understand that. And so as not to the minute Mikel Arteta kind of reverts back to something a little bit more conservative, like, for example, a 4-2-3-1. We're not on his back. We're not screaming from the rooftops because it's something that worked fantastically well on Friday, but it's because of the game. It's because of the circumstance of that particular game that it allowed us to get an upper hand. I don't think that would be the case against certain different systems. And I think we need to be aware of that. I'm sure Mikel Arteta is fully aware of that, by the way. Um, I don't expect him to play this way every single week. But I think when you're at home against certain sides and when you feel like the environment is right, then there's no there's no issue uh, with playing this way. If you can get Laka and Oba in the team together, great. But there will be games where you can't. 
And, and that's just, you know, people say to me a lot that I accept mediocrity. That's one of the common criticisms I get when I talk about Arsenal. It's not accepting mediocrity, it's accepting and understanding where this team are actually at. And we're not an elite side that are so good that we can go out on the pitch every single week and impose our style without any thought for what our opponent is going to do. When you're as good as Liverpool, when you're as good as Man City, when you're as good as Chelsea, you can do those things. But you can't do that at this phase in Arsenal's development. Yes, there has to be a clear structure, clear philosophy, clear idea. But I think there are, if you apply the right principles, you can slightly tweak and adapt systems in order to make yourselves more competitive. So for me, that balance needs to be found, that balance needs to be struck. And whilst I really enjoyed the 4-4-2-4-4-1-1, whatever you want to call it, against Aston Villa, I'm not at a place where I'm going to say now that we should play it every single week. Let's see. You know, you got to you got to look at it. you got to see how it goes. Will Mikel Arteta stick with it against Leicester? I kind of hope he does because I think Leicester will probably play with a back three, in which case they'll be a bit lighter in midfield and we might be able to make it work if indeed they do play that way. But if not, I'll understand it. You know, you're not going to catch me sitting there crying about it. I might say in hindsight, because that's what we do as, you know, people analyse football. We're hindsight merchants more often than not. And, you know, we may look back and say it was the wrong call, but... I think it's impossible to know whether it was the wrong call going into the game is the point I'm making because yes, it's worked, but it's worked once and let's not get carried away. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. If I just refer to the poll uh, that we put in the chat at the start of the video, uh, up to now, 84% of you would like to see Arsenal uh, continue or persist was the term I used with this current system. Um, so, yeah, let's see. Let's see if Mikel Arteta continues it into the game at the King Power at the weekend. So uh, who knows? Who knows? Um, but, yeah, that, that's kind of my take on it. It's kind of my view on it. I think it's great. I think, you know, I really enjoyed so many elements of Arsenal's performance. I talked about it as being the most complete performance um, that I've seen in ages uh, from an Arsenal side. I think the first half in particular was as a complete first half. As, you would, as we've seen from Arsenal under Mikel Arteta, full stop. But, you know, we know that this team are capable of that, right? Because we see flashes of it. But what we need is we need that consistency. And unfortunately, I'm not sure that we can be completely consistent in the system that we play with, in the formation that we play with. Because as I say, I don't think the quality is there whereby you can say, nope, the, like the way Man City do. Nope, we're Manchester City. We are that damn good. This is the way we play. Like it or lump it, we're going to come to your ground and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. I think for us, we're still in a place where we have to be a little bit more humble, a little bit more aware of what people are doing around us and aware of our flaws and weaknesses so that we can try and cover those up um, or at least paper over them going into each game with tactical adjustments and with tactical nuances. So, yeah. Um, that's where I'm at on it. Let's take some of your questions in the live chat box. There's uh, lots of you with us tonight, uh, over 150 of you watching us live right now across the multiple platforms. Please do, if you haven't done so already, hit that like button. It really, really does help. We've got 41 likes on the board on YouTube at the moment, but there's 
so many of you watching, I expect us to get to at least 100 by the time this podcast is up. Uh, please do subscribe to the channel if you're new as well and if you're enjoying the content because we are, I know I keep saying it, but we're slowly edging towards that 17K mark on YouTube. I think last time I looked, we were around about um, 80, something like that, subscribers away from hitting there. So uh, please try and um, and help us get over the line. It really, really does help. If you're already subscribed, we love you. And uh, I know you can't subscribe again. Uh, but if you are new or if you're one of those freeloaders who watches without subscribing, then please do um, get involved in uh, the channel. Uh, lots of you having your... Um, your uh your your say in the comments um i said i was going to talk about the parte laconga thing didn't i my god it almost slipped my mind and james boland just put it in the um in the chat which is a great reminder thank you mate he said you were a foresight merchant when it came to parte and laconga playing closer to each other and emil smith rowe scoring then kissing the badge yeah look it was great to see emil smith rowe score against his former uh, I was going to say his former club it's not his former club the club I should say that tried to sign him um over the summer we know that they made a couple of offers we know that they were desperate to get him to Villa Park looking to spend that Jack Grealish money they spent it on Emi Buendia or a lot of it on Emi Buendia and I bet they you know he might come good but he hasn't shown anything to suggest that he's a 35 40 million pound player so far uh, so that might be a concern to Villa fans at the moment. But yeah, look, I talked, didn't I, at, at length, actually, um, about the need for Lokonga and Partey to play together. I mentioned it on multiple occasions after the Brighton game. I talked about it um, when we drew with Crystal Palace. We really, really needed those two guys to work as a collective and as a unit. And what is a little bit different about, about Lokonga and in comparison to Granite Xhaka, look, Sambi Lekonga was brilliant against um, against Aston Villa. His touch was great. His control was brilliant. His ability to receive the ball in the half turn and completely spin someone and then play a pass and carry the ball and dribble with the ball. And there was a really powerful run he made in the second half. And then I think he played a pass through to Saka on the right who got a shot off, but it was blocked. I think there are so many good things about Sambi Lekonga just based on what we've seen of him in an Arsenal shirt so far. But for me, the one thing that had let him down a little bit at Brighton and had let him down when he came on against Crystal Palace was the distance between him and Thomas Partey. And I think for me, Thomas Partey, we have to stop seeing him as this guy who can hold an entire midfield on his own. There are very few, if any, players in the Premier League Maybe N'Golo Kante is the exception that can hold an entire midfield by themselves. And what I mean by that is can sit in the middle of the park, can afford license and freedom to the players around them to get up the pitch whilst um, whilst holding that midfield position down. And I think we have to accept that that is not Thomas Partey, right? Thomas Partey is a very good centre midfielder, but I'll tell you what, he was never left by Diego Simeone to man a midfield completely alone. He needs a partner. And the reason he and Granite Xhaka, for me, um, look very good when they play together, I know that hasn't been as often as we'd have liked, is because Xhaka will stick it to his position. He'll sit in that hole next to Thomas Partey and provide not even 
an amazing amount of quality, but just the solid foundation from which Partey can then go on and do what he does a lot better, which is get up the pitch, get involved, play progressive passes. And so having Lukonga a lot closer to him on um, on Friday night made a massive difference. This is the kind of distance you want to see between them. But what we saw at Brighton was Brighton's wingbacks coming down the line and Sambi Lukonga, through no fault of his own probably, he's a young, enthusiastic player and probably had a lot of concern about leaving Kieran Tierney exposed, was constantly being dragged into these kind of areas, uh, slightly to the left of centre. Also, the fact that he's a right footer playing on the left-hand side, naturally, in my opinion, means he'll drift that little bit further wide to receive the ball so that he has the pitch inside him to move into rather than to receive it uh, in a narrower position and then turn outside onto his weaker left foot. So I think for me, it was something that Lakonga had to tweak. It wasn't a massive issue. It wasn't a load of drama. It was something that could be tweaked very, very easily. But I think he did that, whether that was put to him by the manager or whether the two players have had a word or I don't know exactly how it's come about, but the pair of them sitting together um, made a massive, massive difference. So I really, really um, enjoyed um, seeing that that performance. And I think the fact that they were so compact and the fact that they were together and that they moved up the pitch as a unit on on most of the time and they pressed as a unit but also sat off as a unit when they needed to meant that we could then afford that extra freedom to sack a lacquer Oba and Emil Smith Rowe that little bit further up the pitch. So I thought they were key in making this 4-4-2, 4-4-1-1, whatever you want to call it, work. Uh, let's take some more of... Um, of your thoughts in from the chat box at maintenance technician says you're a trash talker. You don't have to watch me on a Saturday night, my friend. Um, get a life. Again, he says, uh, Harry, your take on Saka's misses. Yeah, look, I had a bit of an issue um, with Bukayo Saka when he missed that chance in the first half where the ball was cut across to him and he was at, you know, really close range and he, he hit the ball straight at Emmy Martinez or at Emmy Martinez's dive. And it really frustrated me because Bukayo Saka is one of those players that people talk about as having the potential to be world-class and, and really elite. And I do think he's elite in so many ways. I think he's a wonderful dribbler. I think he's incredibly hardworking. I think he's got a lot of intelligence in certain elements, but I think he lacks the killer instinct in front of goal. And I also think that that can be sometimes down to a lack of intelligence when it comes to finishing. I think to be a good finisher, you need to be very cold. And what I mean by that is when the ball comes to you, you need to be cold and be able to block out everything that is going on around you and think rationally and not get sucked into the atmosphere, the expectation of what's going on around you. And I'm not sure that Bukayo Saka is very good at doing that. I think it's something that he can certainly improve on. And I think it's something that, you know, like all young players, everyone has an area in which they need to develop. And I think this is a big one for not just Bukayo Saka, but for Emil Smith-Rowe as well, because he scored, you know, he broke down the left-hand side of the pitch wonderfully, very quick, deceivingly quick. In fact, I think I said on the post-match reaction show, but his goal was a deflected effort. So the finish wasn't ideal. And and as I say, that's something that both of them could really pick up on and, and really kind of learn and develop. And for me, you know, I was looking at, and I was a striker when I played football and I said to you guys before, I played to a, a fairly decent level, but I'm not a pro. You know, I, I, I appreciate that, you know, this might sound a bit rich coming from me, but 
the way I would have approached a situation like that, knowing that I had that much time and space, like Bukayo Saka did in that particular incident that I'm talking about, and the way somebody like maybe Mo Salah might have approached it would have been to take a touch. The ball's come across the face of the goal. Emi Martinez was at the other post, worrying about the cross. He's had to move across his goal swiftly. He's not going to pause that run. He's not going to break that run. He's not going to pause or break the dive. He's going to go across the goal. So why not put your foot on it? Let Emi Martinez commit and then pick out the other corner. I think that's what a cold-minded finisher does in that particular situation. And I don't think that Bukayo Saka is that yet. And, and, and that's... You know, that's something for me that when I talk about the, the guy being a little bit inconsistent or that he and Smith Rowe being our kind of saviours, I talk about that maybe letting us down over the course of the season because I think there will be too many moments like that where the ruthlessness is just missing. And that's partly because they're still developing as young players and maybe because that is something that they need to work on in particular. But that lack of that, I think, could be an issue. And it's something that Aubameyang doesn't have. It's something that Lacazette, you know, Lacazette's not the greatest finisher in the world, in my opinion, but just a more experienced striker, I think, has a little bit more of that about them. And so I do worry about the the number of chances that Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe miss at times because we simply don't create enough or we haven't created enough over the last 12 months or so. We're talking about that improving on Friday, but in general, it's a problem. And therefore, when they do come along, you've got to take them. So, um, yeah, it is a bit of a worry for me. It's not something to go too big on because obviously we won the game, but there will be games where we'll be looking back and saying, if only you put it in the back of the net, things might have been very, very different. I think that was the case a lot of the time last season, not just with Saka, but with a number of players. Luke Williams says, would you give Laka a one-year extension, Harry, considering the impact he's having on the team? I think he's having a great impact. I think What's impressed me most about Lacquer, and I've said this before, is that he doesn't seem to be disinterested. He doesn't look like someone who has an uncertain future. Is he playing for a contract at Arsenal or is he playing for a contract elsewhere? That remains to be seen. But I think for me, he's going through a good patch at the moment. But we've seen these patches from Lacazette before and we've also seen him tail off. So I would be... I would still be reluctant to give him a new contract because I do think that although him and Aubameyang are playing well at the moment, they're not the long-term future of Arsenal. So I would be reluctant to give him a contract today. But if he continues to perform to a really high level over the course of the season, I thought he played really well last season in general under Mikel Arteta. If that continues, I would review the situation in the summer. And if he hasn't signed a pre-contract agreement elsewhere, then I would be tempted to do it on a short-term basis. But that depends on what Lacquer wants as well. You know, he's got to want to do that. Um, he's got to want to accept something like that. He might see a deal elsewhere with, you know, more years on it, bigger numbers on the page might, you know, be more beneficial and more of the right thing for him and his family, in which case, fine. Um, but I, I would be reluctant to do it now just based on a few good performances. I think he brings a lot to the side now, but whatever happens, we've got him till the end of the season. So I'd be I'd be holding off on that one at this moment in time. Uh, Creambone66 says, uh, Harry, do you think this season Arteta is growing tactically? Um, I think that Arteta 
is going to learn along the way, you know, and, and then we've had the debate time and time again around whether he should be allowed to have that debate or whether he should be allowed, sorry, to have that learning time at a club of this size. We've said as well that KSE are not going to fire him because they'd have been well aware of the the kind of need for patience with a project like this. And there will be frustrating moments along the way as Arsenal fans. But I do think a lot of it, you know, we were talking about tactics a lot and tactics are an issue and we always highlight them and we talk about them at length and we look at stats and we look at this and we look at that. A lot of the time it's just when you lose football matches, it's because your players aren't good enough. And football is often overcomplicated by the onlookers. I do feel that. So we can talk about his tactics and I think at times he's made mistakes. I've highlighted them uh, on numerous occasions this season or what I believe to be mistakes anyway. But naturally, he is going to grow and he's going to improve as a manager. The question is, can he do it quick enough? Can he get up to the level that we need him to be at quick enough to ensure that Arsenal, uh, you know, get their object, get to their objective position, get to where they need to be? Um, so it remains to be seen. But I like what I'm seeing in the last few weeks. I do. I think the fact that we've been quite versatile in our system is a positive thing, although I'd like to see a clear identity and a clear plan and a clear way of playing. I'll go back to what I said a little bit earlier on in the sense of I accept that we're not quite at the point just yet where we can ignore what everybody else is doing and focus solely on our own game. We're just not quite there. Uh, Riddy says, Harry, would you start Nuno at Leicester? Um, yeah, I probably would. I don't think he put a foot wrong against Aston Villa. I think there's obviously been some kind of issue with Kieran Tierney's fitness. I think we've seen him playing at maybe 70, 75% over the last few weeks. You know, I talked about that reluctance. He's shown to go forward and to make that run forward. Maybe it was from fear of not being able to get back. Maybe he's not feeling 100%. Maybe he's not feeling right. Look, Kieran Tierney's a wonderful player. Nuno is also a very good player, in my opinion. He's a little bit rough around the edges. I've said that before, and I maintain that. I still think sometimes when he gets into those great positions from left back, his final decision isn't quite right, or he's a little bit rash. And I think defensively, he's probably not as complete as Kieran Tierney positionally and all of that. But a lot of the time, his athleticism gets him out of those holes. So, I think I would start him. I think I'd keep him in the team because he's not put a foot wrong. And I think if Kieran Tierney is having issues, if Kieran Tierney is not quite right, then I think he could probably do with having a bit longer on the sidelines or at least without that pressure of having to be forced back into the side. And remember last season, we couldn't do this. We couldn't give Kieran Tierney a break. We couldn't leave him out the firing line for a couple of weeks where maybe his form took a little bit of a dip because of the lack of an alternative. So we're going to need to use the squad this season. Nuno looks like a very valuable member of the squad in that £8 million or whatever it was that we signed him for. He looks like an absolute steal. So, yeah, um, there's no reason to drop him, although I wouldn't be surprised if Mikel did. Um, but, yeah, no, really enjoying uh, what I'm seeing from him. Uh, Aidan Wheeler says, have Arsenal's recent performances been good enough uh, to get a European place this season? There's no reason in my mind... Um, Aiden as to why we can't be aiming to finish in the top six and why we can't do it, why we can't get over the line. I think this season you'll probably be able to do it with less points than ever because of the competition in this division. You know, teams are taking points off of each other. Um, teams that you don't expect necessarily to take points off of other players or other teams, I should say, uh, are managing to do it at various points. And so if you can maintain a 
fairly consistent level in terms of your points returns, then there's no reason why we shouldn't be in there uh, in the mix. Look, we're unbeaten in six, which is great. Um, you know, a couple of frustrating draws along the way, although I'd argue the Brighton draw was a good draw. The Palace one, not so good being at home. But if we can consistently maintain this level in terms of what we're returning from fixtures, then there's no reason, um, you know, there's no reason why we can't do that. Uh, let's see what else we've got. Um, Matt G says, what do you think is Arteta's best quality as a manager? I'll tell you what, Matt, that is a cracking question. Um, what do I think is his best quality as a manager? I think there's a few things, you know, I think, I think there is a real attention to detail, um, when it comes to Mikel Arteta. I think that sometimes he's been accused of overcoaching the team, but I do think that his attention to detail has contributed to why we've been more difficult to break down than we have been in years gone by. Um, yeah, there've been a few stinker performances in there and we've had problems. Um, and, and, you know, there's been the, the standard overreaction to a lot of those poor performances, but I think tactically he's very, very aware very, very aware. I think he's a lot more aware than anybody gives him credit for. I think that a lot of the time when we do win games, it's because of the nuances that he implements. I think he's dealing with a very inconsistent, largely young group of players, which has obviously got his challenges. He's obviously developing and I'm not saying he gets everything right. I, I In fact, I don't think he gets even the majority of things right nowadays, but it's... um. It's really great to see a manager who pays that much attention to detail. And I think he's very in touch with modern football. And I think football's changed a hell of a lot. And it's why you've seen people like Jose Mourinho, for example, be right here at the pinnacle of European football. And now in a position where he's taking what I would class with all due respect to the two clubs, second tier jobs, Tottenham Hotspur, Roma. They're not the Inter and Juventus of Italy, you know, and Tottenham are not the Manchester City and Liverpool of the Premier League. So he's, you know, he's in that second tier now. I think it's why Arsene Wenger lost touch because the game changed, the game developed. And in Mikel Arteta, although he's got faults, I see a very modern football coach, someone who's very in touch with the modern game. And that will come a lot from the fact that he's worked with Pep Guardiola, who is one of the best among this modern group of elite coaches. And, and I think that that stands us in good stead if, of course, as I said earlier on, he can develop at the rate that we need him to so that he is at the level that he needs to be in the next couple of years and Arsenal can keep pushing and while developing not just the coach, but the players as well. We can all grow together, hopefully. Um, but I think that's what it is. The fact that he is so in touch with the modern game, I think, is obviously something that works in his favour and it's why he's got himself a job like this with very little experience. Um, I also think he's incredibly passionate as well. and And I... You know, I'm fortunate enough to be at the games and I know that there are a lot of people overseas that watch this who won't see what we see in the stadium through no fault of their own, just because the television pictures don't always pick up on it. But this is a man that lives and breathes every single kick, every single moment from the sidelines. His reaction when officials give decisions the other way, that's someone that even if you think he's not perfect and you think that he's got... um you know, faults, cares about the job he's doing and takes so much pride in the work he's doing. And for me, when you see someone working and trying so hard to succeed, it's impossible not to want them to. That's how I see it. Um, you know, so that's where I am on it. 
let's take I'm going to take one more question before we wrap up. Um, and don't worry, we'll be back tomorrow with another stream and we'll take any questions that we missed. So if you make sure you join us for that and, and chuck them in the chat. Uh, Sojo Sedodo says, did you see Saliba today? I did not. I've got to be honest. I was watching Inter versus Juventus. Um, I cover a lot of Italian football, so that was something that I needed to watch and wanted to watch because, yeah, French Liga doesn't really appeal to me, I'm, I'm sorry to say. But obviously, I understand why a lot of Arsenal fans are watching it, both William Saliba and, of course, Matteo Guendouzi, both in action. I have seen that clip of Saliba making that brilliant sliding challenge on Mbappe, I think it was. Um, and I'm sure I'll catch up with the highlights of that game. But look, I'm delighted to hear uh, that he's performing well and that he's doing great. I, I heard that he had a stinker in Europe midweek. Haven't seen it again, not the full game anyway. Um, but it's good to hear that he's, you know, he's doing well and he can come back and be another centre-half in contention for that, you know, the back two, along with White and Gabriel. That's what we need and we are building. And look, you can say what you want about the decision to send Saliba out on loan, but him playing every week at a club like Marseille is a much better experience than him coming in and out of the side at Arsenal and playing Carabao Cup games at Arsenal. I think in the long run, you will see that the decision to loan him out was the right one. And I think we'll benefit from it over the long term. And I think there is a build going on at Arsenal that a lot of people have, have struggled to see. You know, a lot of people have looked at it and gone, I can't really see where we're going. I, I don't really see how this is going to work. But I'm taking a lot of encouragement from the types of characters that we've brought into the club. The fact that we are bringing in young, hungry talents. And Saliba, yeah, he didn't get off to a great start. I think the fact that he wasn't Mikel Arteta's player meant that he had a bit of a culture shock when Arteta came in and kind of didn't welcome him in a kind of way where it was like, yeah, you are definitely you know, one of the key members or one of the people that need to, um, you know, be in my first team. I think that comes as a bit of a shock to Saliba because I'm sure the previous regime would have done so much to kind of win him over and bring him to the club that they almost kind of gave him the impression that he would walk straight into the team. It wasn't to be. He's gone out on loan. He seems to be doing pretty well overall. And as I say, I think Arsenal are going to benefit from that in the long run. And I think in hindsight, we're going to look back and say it was the right decision and the right call. Valuable experience um, at a club like Marseille, where there is a lot of pressure, where there is a lot of expectation, is a good thing and is much more beneficial than bench warming at Arsenal. And um, and that's where I'm at. Right, we are going to leave it there. Uh, let's make sure that if you haven't done so already and you're watching us on YouTube, that you hit the like button. We're nowhere near the 100 target that I set earlier on, which is not right because... There's over 200 of you watching us right now. So please get involved. Smash the like button. Like, like, like. Subscribe to the channel if you're new. We'll be back tomorrow with some more Arsenal and football-related content. Enjoy what's left of your Sunday evening if you're listening via the audio. Have a great Monday. I'll catch you all very, very soon. Until next time, goodbye. listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon.